The Bob Murphy Show, episode 203. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i am continuing three-part series, What Did Bob Learn? This is part two of three. So let's jump right in. And what I'm going to do is I'll try not to get so bogged down. The last one, I spent more time on the international trade stuff than I had intended. There was not a wasted syllable, mind you. I regret nothing, but I do want these to be snappier. All right. So if you thought that one went a bit long, don't worry. I'll try to keep these things shorter per topic, let's say. Okay. So first, Let's talk about the great debt debate. So this was something that just blew my mind, and people use that phrase a lot, but this really did just completely upset my world, and in a good way. Like, I was just amazed after it happened, and because it had so profoundly changed the way I thought about something, and it was just, I was walking around in a daze for a few days, just letting the ramifications of the change sink in. So the background is, I used to think that when people would complain about government debt and how it burdened our grandkids, that there was something a little off about that. So specifically, here's what I used to think. And I was so sure of this interpretation that I actually wrote it up in my book, Lessons for the Young Economist, all right? So there's something in there that at best is misleading right now, like a few passages and at worst is, is wrong. And so here's how it goes. What I said then is, yes, it can be harmful to future generations if the current generation votes for politicians who end up authorizing big deficit spending. And I said, but the the specific mechanism is that by running up big deficits, the government can crowd out private saving and investment. And hence, you know, we who are alive today end up bequeathing a smaller private capital stock or, you know, fewer stockpiles of real capital goods of various kinds, if you want to maintain heterogeneity in your conceptions, we bequeath fewer capital goods to our heirs, right? So effectively, if we have, if our, if the government runs big budget deficits today, what ends up happening perhaps is that a hundred years from now, our grandkids or great grandkids, depending on how it washes out, you know, they have fewer tractors and drill presses and factories and telescopes and stuff like that to work with than they otherwise would have in a different timeline where we didn't allow for such big government deficits today. All right. And so that that's why I said, so to be clear, at no point in this did I think government deficits were benign. I just thought the way, if they were going to, in a sense, impoverish our grandkids the mechanism would be by reducing private sector saving and investment through, quote, crowding out. That when the government borrows money, it drives up interest rates and makes it harder for private businesses to get capital. Okay, 
and so I said, what, what isn't the case, what you shouldn't focus on, I thought at the time, was the mere fact of the U.S. government paying interest on the outstanding national debt that I said, you know, that, that kind of thing, like looking at the budget and GG, look at the share of the budget that's devoted just to interest payments or servicing the debt. And a lot of conservative right-wing types thought that was an indication of how much we were by our current profligacy or our immaturity, you know, oh, we want the goodies from the government. We want the government to spend money on our behalf, but we don't want to pay for it. We don't want to have tax hikes to pay for it. So we just borrow it and basically make our kids pay for it. You know, we, we put it on the credit card, let the kids deal with it or the grandkids. That's, that's the rhetoric. And I was saying that I thought doesn't quite work because, and here was my argument. I said, just think about it, you know, fast forward a hundred years and they're saying, oh, if the federal debt is whatever, $20 trillion higher than it would have been in a different timeline and the interest rate, let's say, is 5%, then that means every year there's a trillion dollars of extra interest payments in servicing that $20 trillion higher debt. And so therefore, the critics think, oh, gee, our grandkids who are alive at that point now as taxpayers, they have to come up with an extra trillion dollars a year that they otherwise wouldn't have. But I said, hang on, there's a counterbalancing force. Those same grandkids, to the extent that the debt is held by Americans, the treasuries, are the ones receiving those payments. And so I thought, yeah, the U.S. government is taxing taxpayers an extra trillion dollars a year to service this extra stock of debt. But on the other hand, who is it going to? Well, it's going to the bondholders who are also our grandkids because we're all dead. And so just as we've passed along a U.S. government that's an extra $20 trillion in the hole, by the same token, those treasury securities have been passed along. And so our grandkids, to the extent that, you know, they're the recipients of those securities, are $20 trillion richer. And so I thought that was a mere wash. Okay? So that's what I thought. And th that it turns out that that's wrong, that second part. And so what happened was Dean Baker... I think this stuff was in 2012 when this stuff all blew up, like 2012. And then I think it spilled over into 2013. I might be off by it. Maybe it's, it. Maybe it started in 2011 and spilled over into 2012. But uh, obviously, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 203. I'll give you the links. In particular, I wrote this thing that was like a, I call it the economist zone, like parodying the twilight zone. And it was, I know I'm normally just bubbling over with humility, folks. This essay was really something special. Like it was accurate in terms of summarizing the perspective of just about everybody who had participated in this great internet debate. Everybody from Dean Baker to Paul Krugman to Steve Landsberg to Don Boudreaux to Gene Callahan uh, to Daniel Keene. His name looks like Kuhn, but it's Keene. As I think, was it, shoot, I forget who the, there was some, it was, some, it was somebody like, yeah, like a conservative commentator like who writes for the Washington Post or something, now the name's escaping me. But in any event, it was one of those guys set the thing off and then Dean Baker chimed in and was like, oh, here we go again. These right-wingers don't understand how government finance works to the extent that we owe the debt to ourselves. It's just a transfer payment. No, you can't impoverish our grandkids. And Paul Krugman jumped in and, you know, rolling his eyes at these idiots who don't understand the fallacy of composition and the sort of thing. And so, and I wrote this piece that was sort of like a satire, but yet accurately represented everybody's viewpoint. And I, like I say, I, th I think it was, it was a work of art. And so you should check it out. But in any event, what happened was 
some right-wing commentator, like I say, you know, made an offhand remark about, well, we're running deficits again. Irresponsible Americans don't want to pay for the goodies. So they're making our grandkids pay for it. Dean Baker chimed in and said, you know, we've known for 50 years that this is stupid. That's not how it works to the extent that we owe the debt to ourselves. It's not a burden to our grandkids. It's just a transfer payment. Making the same argument that I just summarized for you a minute ago that I also had in Lessons for the Economist. So again, to be clear, don't get confused, folks. Dean Baker and Paul Krugman were using this argument to poo-poo worries about the deficit. They were saying, it, you know, so long as it's spent on productive things like infrastructure and whatever, healthcare, blah, 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 then it's a good thing and don't let these right-wingers scare you. And by the way, what they're saying is palpable nonsense. Whereas I was just clarifying and saying, yes, government deficits are bad and make our grandkids poor, but let's be careful about the mechanism by which that happens. So to be clear, I was never like I was joined at the hip with Krugman and Dean Banker, but I did think they were correct on that one narrow point. And so it was interesting because Don Boudreau came in and was criticizing them. And he was citing James Buchanan, who had gone toe-to-toe with like Abba Lerner and stuff way back in the day on this stuff Buchanan had. And it was interesting because I was so sure, I was so locked into my framework thinking that no, there's not a time machine. There's no, like, if the government spends money right now, it's got to come out of present resources, right? There's no way we can effectively consume at the expense of our grandkids who aren't born yet. That doesn't make any sense. And, and here, and I thought I was being very Austrian because Mises talked about that when it came to war finance. He had some passages saying, you know, some, some writers allege that if we use debt to finance a war that we're not paying for the munitions our grandkids are paying for. And he was pointing out, well, no, I mean, if we're making bombs today, that's resources that could have gone into other stuff today. It's not that we're somehow siphoning resources via a time machine from the future, right? So I thought I was on real solid ground with that. And what Don Boudreau was saying, you know, he was, again, he was paraphrasing stuff Buchanan had brought up. And I just, I was so sure I was right. I was like, no, Don's wrong. And it was, it was funny. I was getting ready to write an article in defense of Paul Krugman. I think I was even going to use that as the title, which just would have been hilarious because, you know, at the time, Tom Woods and I had our Contra Krugman podcast. So it would have been hilarious. And I was actually looking forward to it to, to show, look at I'm tough but fair. When, when I think Krugman's right on something, I will say so. And I was going to go ahead and do that. And then Nick Rowe, that wacky Canadian economist, he did like a simple little, instead of the verbal arguments that Boudreau was doing that I thought were wrong, Nick Rowe had a simple little model of like, you know, two goods and two time periods, like apples and oranges available today and tomorrow, or, or you know, this year and next year, something like that, time T and T plus one. And he was just doing some real little simple thing like that to show that Krugman and Dean Baker were wrong and that there was a sense in which the present generation could live at the expense of future generations. And I was working with the, I remember where I was too. I was at my parents' house in Florida and I was going through the example in my head and I was getting ready to blow them up. And I was pacing around the room and I'm thinking, and, and I realized, oh, wait a minute. No, he's right. Holy crap. And I was going through. So it turned out he was right. So here's, let me cut to the chase. And obviously, again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 203. I also have devoted a whole lecture to this at Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, so I'll put another link there if you really want me to walk through it. So I also did a lecture at the Mises Institute on this stuff. But what the, the problem is, if you're thinking of the generations as being self-contained, so like, oh, there's this generation 
and then we die and we hand over all the capital goods and all the debt claims and all of the you know financial assets to our kids and then they take over and they run the world for 50 years and then they turn it over to their kids if you're looking at it like that then yeah you, then it can't happen then there's no sense in which the present generation can live at the expense of unborn future generations but what you can do is what if there's overlap what if in any given period, for example, so we got to make the model as simple as possible, but yet complex enough to allow for the subtlety. What if at any given time period, there's over two overlapping generations? So there's an older generation and a younger generation. And then every period, the older generation dies off. The previously young generation turns into the old generation and then a new young generation is born, right? So each cohort only lives for two periods in this model that's as simple as possible yet complex enough to allow for this possibility then it can it can work and so and also to make things real simple assume there's just what's called an endowment economy right so there's no physical saving and investment just imagine there's trees that just shoot out apples every year and there's no nothing you can do you can't like refrain from consumption and plant more apples to have more trees available next year or anything like that no it's just every year there's a given stockpile of apples that shoots out and that's like the real GDP, if you will, of the economy, like whatever, a hundred apples a year, boom. And that's forever. So you can build a little model like that. And in there you can do it. And, and I did this stuff. Like I took what Nick said and dressed it up, convinced myself it was true. And so what happens is the government can borrow money, you know, in period one, the government can borrow money from the young generation in order to deficit spend and lavish goodies on the older generation. So the older generation is clearly better off. They get a transfer payment from the government that they didn't pay for. So their utility goes up, then they die. The younger generation then turns into the older generation and the new generation that's born, who wasn't even alive when that previous decision was made, gets taxed. And then that is used, those revenues are used to pay off the debt of the original young generation who's now old. And so if you run the number, you can pick the numbers and, you know, have utility functions, blah, blah, such that the original young generation, all things considered, agrees to the transfer, right? So they achieve more utility from their perspective, both, you know, ex ante and ex post or in period one and in period two, knowing that they're going to get a nice interest payment from the government for their loan that they made voluntarily they're happy to do it. So they reduce their consumption in the first period in order to increase their consumption in the second period. And you can, again, run the numbers so it all balances and everything that each period, the total number of apples consumed by everyone in society equals the total number of apples produced by the trees. And you can make it all work out. And it can turn out that the original old generation and the original young generation both benefit and the new young generation born in period two is hurt. And... You know, there's nothing contradictory about that. And so the, spe the, the specific flaw when you're saying, and also too, part of the issue is Krugman thought there was some hijinks involved with when, when he saw people trying to argue this and, and he just never backed down. And, and this is how I knew Krugman didn't look at my blog because if he had seen what I did, because I did it, I didn't just do it in words. I did it like in a nice button down neoclassical model with utility functions and everything. You know, I did an Excel just to make sure everything worked out. If he had seen that, I am confident he would have, he wouldn't have said he was wrong, but he would have stopped saying false things because he was saying demonstrably false things in his columns on this. And 
you know, I know he's smart enough that if he had seen my thing, that was a counterexample of stuff he was saying, he would have at least adjusted. To his credit, Dean Baker did, did that. Dean Baker basically said halfway through this thing, okay, yeah, I've been reading some of the critics. And yes, theoretically, it's possible. But what I'm saying is, no, empirically, that's not what's going on, which is totally fine. You know, you, you can argue empirically. It's not a, this mechanism that James Buchanan and Don Boudreau were pointing to and that I, with Nick Rowe's help, had isolated in my little examples. You could say, okay, empirically, that's not what's going on. Fair enough. But Krugman was trying to say logically it was impossible. And no, he was wrong. So part of what goes, the problem with when you say, oh, our great-grandkids would have inherited the treasury securities. And so if they're being taxed and then receiving the payments, it's a wash to them. No, that's wrong because they might not have just been handed those treasury securities as a free gift, as a you know, free inheritance. They might have had to pay for them. And that's, that's one of the flaws in the original you know, quick logic by which I said, well, if the government 100 years from now is gonna tax the citizens who are alive at that point, in order to pay a trillion dollars in interest payments, well, the people who have inherited those securities are getting a trillion dollars. So it's a what? Well, no, because what if those people had to pay the previous generation 800 billion in order to get the securities that then entitled them to a trillion dollar payment? You see, so the fact that they were taxed a trillion and then handed the trillion right back doesn't mean it's a wash if they earlier had to restrict their consumption by 800 billion in order to illegally obtain those treasury securities you know, which an equilibrium could happen. Okay, so anyway, I'll stop there. I already went longer on this than I meant to, but that's the, the cool thing there where it just, when I was thinking it through and it's like, there's all sorts of stuff about, you know, like what happens in equilibrium at the macro level versus individually, you know, you invest in treasury securities because you're taking the amount of total taxation as given. And it's, it's, it's really cool how that all fit together and how my quick logic early on actually turned out to be wrong. Okay, next let's mention, here's a quick one. Let me read you an excerpt. This is from an, or, an article I wrote for Fee. This was something that was a paper I had done as an undergrad at Hillsdale College for one of Gary Wolfram's classes. And he really liked it. And he said, this is good. You should send this in to Fee. And I did it and they published it. So the title is The Origins of the Public School. And they ran this on Wednesday, July 1st, 1998. So I think I must have been a senior when I wrote this. And so here's the first few sentences. Hardly anyone disputes the contention that the modern public school is seriously flawed. Test scores continue to be poor while metal detectors are found in the more violent schools. Welfare state liberals argue that schools in poor areas need more money to place them on an equal footing with their richer counterparts. Conservatives usually reply that the solution is a voucher system that would break the government monopoly on education by restoring choice and control to parents. But virtually all participants on both sides of the debate can see the nobility of the original reformers. In their view, the, quote, good intentions of such school champions as Horace Mann and John Dewey led to unintended consequences. Such admiration is misplaced, blah, 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 blah. As historian Michael Katz writes, the crusade for educational reform led by Horace Mann was not the simple, unambiguous good it had long been taken to be. The central aim of the movement was to establish more efficient mechanisms of social control and its chief legacy was the principle that education was something the better part of the community did to the others to make them more orderly, moral, and tractable. All right, so there's the opening. You see what I'm doing with that essay. So what, and I'll link, of course, to that at bobmurphyshow.com slash 203 if you're interested. But what I wanted to draw your attention to here, and this is something that did change my approach, 
I remember in my original draft of this, what I had written for the second sentence was, test scores continue to plummet while metal detectors are found in the more violent schools. And so then what the fee editor did is flagged that and changed it to test scores continue to be poor. And so you see the difference? So I was just taking sort of like this cliche that, oh yeah, those public schools are awful and test scores keep plummeting while they're... And this person's point was, well, no, actually, are you sure, Mr. Murphy, that the test scores continue to plummet? Like, did you actually go look them up and saw the test scores in 1998 or 97, one of the latest figures were available, were lower than they were in 1992? Or do you just mean test scores lately are worse than they were in 1950, which is really what I meant. Okay, so that's a little thing where they caught me that, yeah, I had just been sort of shooting from the hip and saying something that wasn't literally true, or at least I didn't know that it was literally true because I kind of thought, oh, come on, we know those public schools, you know how they are, plummeting test score. And they were saying, no, let's just say sentences that are literally true. <laughs> and I, I, I realized that's funny now telling you this, but that was, you know, a, a, a transformative experience. And I realized, oh yeah, it's not enough just to say stuff like, come on, you know what I mean? Like I was kind of writing like Trump used to talk. So anyway, I just thought they might, you might be interested in that one. What else? This notion that the Federal Reserve is private. So here I've, again, the purpose of this series, remember folks, is things where I've changed my mind. So on um, the, let's see, I was in Nashville. I don't remember what year it was, but I was, they were going to protest the Fed and so I must have been, you know, after Ron Paul was running for president for the GOP when, you know, and the Fed and everything was big. And so somehow people got a hold of me and said, hey, we're going to go pro whatever. There's not like a Federal Reserve Bank in Nashville, but whatever the thing was there, the closest thing to it is, is what we went to protest, right? So I'm just looking it up. I, I think it's the, the Atlanta branch of the Federal Reserve or Sorry, the Atlanta Federal Reserve has a Nashville branch, is I think what the thing technically was. So we were outside and, you know, and I came up and gave a little talk with a bullhorn. And we, there was like, I don't know, 15 people there or something. So I don't want to misconstrue the size of the turnout. But we were sitting there and, and people had signs and stuff and they were, you know, cars were driving by and we were trying to get their attention and whatnot. And one of the signs that these, you know, guy in his 20s brought was to say the Fed is a private corporation or something like that. And I remember the time thinking, well, you know, of all the stuff you could say about the Federal Reserve, the fact that it's a private, you know, why is that? I mean, some of the best things in life have been made by private corporations. You know, it's, it's sort of like if you had a sign saying Woodrow Wilson had two arms, right? Like to me, like that's not really a big deal. But now I... I do get it. I understand why that's surprising to people. It's not so much that they're saying something being a private corporation per se is illegitimate, but they're saying this entity that's supposed to regulate the banks, the fact that it is itself a private corporation, that's weird. Just like if the FDA were a private corporation literally owned by the pharmaceutical companies, that would be weird. All right. And so the Federal Reserve is a corporation whose shares are owned by the banks that it regulates. That's weird, okay? Now, still, to be fair, it's still true that the 
federal government, you know, appoints the chair and all that kind of has to get confirmed and all those things too. So it's, it's not a private company in the exact same way that Walmart is or something, but still, um, I understand now why people bring that up and it's, it is worth mentioning, especially if your point is that the Fed is not doing things that are in the interest of the, of the general public. So again, it's, the point is not to say that, oh, if the Fed were just directly controlled by the government, the way the IRS or the FDA are, then they would be just as beneficial to the general welfare the same way the IRS and the FDA are. That's obviously would be naive too. But anyway, so I'm just saying I, I no longer roll my eyes or think it's wrong when people go out of their way to let the public know, hey, did you know the Fed is actually a privately owned corporation? It's sort of like, um, I really like Michael Malice's, I think he invented this. I don't know if he grabbed it from somebody, but he was the one at least that made the, I, know, I think maybe he was talking to Dave Smith a while ago where he was explaining why he used the term corporate media. Because for a while, a bunch of us were fumbling around with what do we, you know, you don't want to call it the mainstream media. That's what we used to call it. But after a while, it's like, no, because most people don't really get their news from them anymore. So is it really the mainstream that doesn't, you know, or at some point that's going to flip. And so let's try to come up with something that's a more accurate title that doesn't sort of concede that they're the, the only game in town. And Malice made the case for calling them the corporate media. And he said, among other virtues of that, is that it, you know, for leftists who are instinctively hostile to corporations, it's worthwhile pointing out that why would you get your news and your facts from a bunch of privately held profit-seeking businesses? Like when normally that makes you skeptical, right? So anyway, that's something where I've changed my mind. Let's see. Um, why don't we go ahead and jump into the deep end here? and talk about something where I totally changed my mind, but it's not about economics. This issue of nice guys finish last, right? So I was starting in junior high and then going through, let's say, early grad school. I had dabbled with in various forms this notion that, and it's, it's evolved over time, and I don't keep up with this stuff now, obviously, being married, but you know, back in the day, it was this idea that, you know, oh, girls don't like nice guys or whatever, or you got to be an a-hole if you want to be successful with the ladies, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was crystallized when I was in college. There was actually a book that somebody told me about and I got my hands on called, I think the title was Nice Guys Don't Get Laid. I think that was the title. And the authors made a compelling case. You know, it was It was like a fun book. You know, I think it had funny illustrations and stuff, but it wasn't tongue in cheek. Like it was serious, even though it was supposed to be entertaining. And they made some good point. Like, for example, you know, if you go and if you describe somebody who's like some guy who's, you know, in trouble with the law, he's in and out of prison, he's always behind on, you know, his obligations, he's, he can't hold a job, da, da, da. This, you know, maybe he's in and out of drug rehab. And you're describing him and he's maybe he's a member of a gang and da, da, da. And then if you mention, no, by the way, he has a string of girlfriends that he's gotten pregnant and whatever. And he's always, they're always getting mad at him because he's cheating on Like that would fit right in with the profile I just said, right? Like you wouldn't have expected me to list all those other attributes that he's a gang member, that he's in and out of prison, all these other things can't hold it. And that, oh, and by the way, he, he can't figure out how to get girls to go on dates with him. That, that wouldn't fit if I said that last part. But when I say, and he has a string of girlfriends that he's gotten, half of whom he's gotten pregnant and he's always getting 
in trouble because he cheats on whoever his current girlfriend is. That totally fits that profile, doesn't it? So isn't that weird? You would think that if I had listed all those other attributes, then it would be, and women, knowing what a bad character he is, steer clear and go for the guy who holds a job and stays out of prison and doesn't cheat on them. But yet, you know full well, if you know anything about the world, that a guy like that has no trouble whatsoever getting girlfriends pregnant, let alone getting a date on Friday night. Whereas the guy who, if I just start listing the attributes, you know, is a straight A student and holds a job, never never shows up late to work and has never had any kind of brushes with the law and but, 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 always buys flowers for his date. Like if I said then, and you know, now that the prom's coming up, he doesn't know what he's going to do and he's been worrying about it for three months, that would totally fit in, wouldn't it? All right, so that prima facie is weird. You wouldn't, if, if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't have expected that going into it. Just like if I were describing the animal kingdom and said there's two different males and one is sickly and is always getting in fights with other ones and is banged up and whatever and, uh, you know, can't find food very well. And the other one is really good at finding food and, you know, is watches after the young and da, 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 da. And then which one is the female going to mate with? You would be surprised if she would mate with the, <laughs> with the one that doesn't seem to be responsible, right? Okay, so there is a thing there. They also brought up the case of um, like to try to really do like a controlled experiment as it were. Because, you know, you could say there's other things going on there that, well, the gang member, well, you know, he's, he's an alpha male. You know, he's got a lot of, he's, he's got virility, you know, he's tough. Whereas if, if in addition to the other things of the guy who always shows up, if he's just a limp biscuit and he's just, you know, always just a doormat or something, well, then, yeah, you can see why he's not attractive, right? So you can always fill in enough of the other things. But what was interesting is they brought up the case of Larry Hagman, the actor, and they said, you know, so he had two iconic roles. And first he was the, you know, the male star of the, the sitcom I Dream of Jeannie, right? You know, he was the, I forget what, what he was. Was he a major or something that finds Jeannie in the bottle and whatever? And she's, you know, master. No, 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 no. And he was a super nice guy in that, right? You know, always getting exasperated. Oh, Jeannie, look at the hijinks you've caused this episode. And then later, he played J.R. Ewing in the show Dallas, where he was a cutthroat, ruthless businessman who was the villain. And so what the authors of this book claimed was that back when Larry Hagman was the nice guy in the star of I Dream of Jeannie, you know, he got some fan mail or whatever, but nothing over the top. But when he was J.R. Ewing, all these women in America had huge crushes on him, and he would get all of these explicit letters from women, you know, who wanted to have his baby and stuff. And so they were saying, you know, it, 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 it's not like that he was good looking or it's the same guy, but when he was playing a nice guy that, you know, in theory on paper should be a good mate, women weren't interested in him. When he played a scoundrel that was untrustworthy and would, you know, stab you in the back whenever the opportunity arose, all of a sudden women were throwing themselves at him. And then they also brought up the fact that Serial killers, actual serial killers. People like Charles Manson that would get marriage proposals in prison and yet, quote, nice guys out there can't get a date, <laughs> right? So they were going through. And so um, anyway, I was, I, I myself fell into that rut and concocted all sorts of whiny, self-serving sob stories about, you know, it's just not fair. And if you try to be principled and honorable, then you know, nothing happens and, and you and look at all these jerks who have no trouble. And so it's like, 
you got to choose. You got to either be a jerk or lonely, and, and, and right? And so anyway, without dwelling on it too long, let me just say that is not correct, that framework, all right? And for those of you who are mired in that, I'm telling you guys from the bottom of my heart, that is not correct. Do not think that you have to choose between being a jerk or lonely. That is not correct, all right? What, what's happening is, is you're focusing on just a subset of the dating scene and you're only seeing things that confirm your hypothesis because you've now built it up to such a level that you actually enjoy. It's like playing with a canker sore or something in your mouth where the pain actually is exhilarating or something. Like you want it to be true now because you've invested so much in it. And if it really was just something that you was in your head and you've been holding yourself back all along because of a lie, well, that's almost a terrible thing to face and you don't want that to be true either. But it's better that that's true than that your original theory is true. Okay, so... Um, for example, one of the things you're probably doing wrong, if that's the way you're looking at the world is, well, let me put it this way. You're not wrong in the examples that you're documenting. Okay. So people who try to say you're crazy and no, 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 it's not true that girls like jerks or whatever. That's not true at all. Yeah. Those people are wrong. They're ignoring reality too. All right. That the examples you think see and like, oh, gee, and there's this girl that I really liked and she just kept dating guys who were jerks and then she'd come cry to me about it and and why didn't she realize that I was right for her? Yeah, you're not wrong for noting examples like that. But that doesn't mean all girls are like that, all right? So some girls are like that and yeah, and, and what you're doing, you're like in a sense, you're like the mirror image of them. Just like there are certain girls who, yes, they just continually fall for jerks and for whatever reason they're not attracted to guys that actually would be good for them. And, you, you know, you could say they got self-esteem issues or, you know, maybe something with their father, who the heck knows. Well, likewise, there's something wrong with you if you're only attracted to girls who are like that, right? And so, again, I don't know what's going on in your situation, but I analyzed my own. When I got myself out of this, I got to thought my way through it. And part of what I was doing was I was only chasing girls that, like, like I wanted to prove that I was good enough to get a girl to like me who originally liked nothing but jerks. And so any quote normal girl who wasn't attracted to jerks and that might like me, I wasn't interested in. Now, it wasn't that obvious to me that that's what I was doing at the time. I just, you know, for all the reasons you might like someone or not, not be attracted to them, like that's what was going on. I said, like, ah, I'm not after to her. Well, well, this girl over here intrigues me. She's exciting. She's elusive, you know. But I'm, what I'm saying is I realized later when I had my epiphany about all this stuff is part of what was driving whether I was attracted to them or not was, did they look like the kind of person, the kind of girl who would be interested in someone who was nice? And if they were, then they were boring, okay? So again, it was like I realized there was a sense in which I was the analog of these girls who just chased guys that you knew were not good for them. Likewise, I would get crushes on girls that it was was not going to work out. They weren't going to, you know, end up dating me because... They had issues going on with themselves. And my issue was that I was attracted to girls like that. Okay. So there's that element. Another way of seeing it is a mistake you might be making is when you're trying to say, oh, what is it that makes men attracted? And obviously, all this stuff, folks, I'm referring to heterosexual relationships, blah, blah, you know, that should go without saying. Okay. I'm here talking about that subset of stuff. Um, You know, what is it that makes girls attracted to guys? And you're trying to isolate that stuff. And one mistake is to look at guys who are womanizers. 
and then try to extrapolate from that and say, oh yeah, so some guy who, you know, every Friday night goes out and hooks up with a different girl and has no trouble with it, has no fear. He, you know, just walks up to a group of girls and starts flirting with them or whatever and he doesn't care. And whereas I'm sitting over here planning for three hours, what should I say? And oh, maybe if, we, if I buy her a drink and, and then she leaves and I'm lamenting that I didn't have the courage to go talk to her. Right, you're contrasting yourself with that guy over there with unbridled confidence and he's a ladies' man. And I'm saying that's actually not what you want. You don't want to be a womanizer. That's, that's a mistake too. So what you should really be doing is look at some guy that you think is a cool guy who has, you know, like an attractive, cool girlfriend that you think, oh yeah, that's neat. You know, he, every Valentine's Day, they do stuff and they're good and they're, you know, maybe they're talking about marriage or whatever and they have a nice loving relationship. And that's what you want to emulate if, if you're trying to pick a role model. And if you go look around at the happy couples you know, people you know who've been in a relationship for six months or more and who don't have a history of horrible relationships on top of it, you're going to probably see that, oh, wait a minute, those girls don't seem to be attracted to guys that treat them like crap. And they're not always you know, coming to me and crying on my shoulder for the latest guy that screwed them over because they're in a happy relationship. You don't even focus on them. You just take that for granted. And that doesn't even pop up on your radar. Instead, you're just focusing on the ones, you know, that fit this pattern that you like to cite because so you can say the world is unfair and these idiot women don't know what's good for them and they're just attracted to jerks. And so what am I supposed to do? Okay. So again, I don't want to dwell too long on each of these topics, but just think through and see if maybe you're not making those mistakes or see if you are making those mistakes. Last thing I'll say on this stuff, it's a slight tweak that um, if you're younger, let's say you're here 25 or younger, don't strive to be a nice guy because at this point that phrase is overused. Instead, try to conduct yourself such that if girls referred to you, they would say, oh yeah, he's a good guy, All right? That, that, that can't be wrong, right? You, you wouldn't want it to be the case that if someone said, is he a good guy or not, that they would be hesitating, okay? And, and I submit to you, girls would not be afraid or reluctant to date a good guy, Whereas when someone says, oh, he's a nice guy, there is a sense now, especially with the way that phrase has been used, that it sort of means, yeah, he's not a threat, but he's also, there's nothing special about him. Like there's nothing, there's no there there. He's just kind of a, a weak reed blowing in the wind. And so, yeah, why, why would anybody want to be with that guy? He's just a nice guy. Eh. You know, yeah, he'll hold the door for you, but who cares? All right. Whereas a good guy is somebody who is going to do the right thing and could be courageous in certain situations. And then if you're older than that, again, instead of trying to be a nice guy, instead, be a kind man. How's that, right? That somebody that men and women would describe as a kind man, I submit there is nothing wrong with that, that that's what you should want to do. And nobody would be afraid of dating someone who, whom others describe as, oh yeah, that, he's a very kind man. Like, that's, you would be a magnet for the type of person you would want to be in a relationship with. All right, so there you go. So I've told you what you're doing wrong and I've given you something to do instead. Go do it. Hey folks, let's take a break from the discussion to once again mention that the more you give, the more you get. I really appreciate all the contributions you folks have been sending and uh, feel free to do more. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to send more or to do it for the first time. If you're squeamish, it's really not that hard. You can do it. Also, for those of you who can't contribute financially, what you can do instead of that 
is anytime I have an episode that you think might be something your friends or coworkers would want to listen to, or even just to challenge them, go ahead and send it along. That's the way we grow. Thanks for listening, everybody. And now let's get back to the show. Okay. Why don't I end with utility theory? Another economics one to round out this episode. So here is my evolution on this topic. Originally, I, so I got into economics. I first read Milton Friedman. I'm talking like high school. Well, maybe was I in junior high? Early high school, let's say. I was reading like the conservative chronicle stuff, like op-ed pieces by Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. And then I, I, my first book, I think, was Money Mischief by Milton Friedman. And then I got Henry Hazlitt. And then he got led me to Mises. And I got Rothbard in there. And okay, so... I had been reading Rothbard and some Austrians before I got to college. In fact, that's why I went to Hillsdale College for undergrad is because they had Mises' personal library. And I knew I wanted to be an Austrian economist by the time I was a senior in high school. So before I took a formal economics class at the college level, I had already been reading Rothbard's critiques of, let's, you know, let's say neoclassical economics. And so when it comes to utility theory, I had been prepped by the Austrians to say or to know that, uh-oh, those wacky mainstream economists, they believe in cardinal utility. They write goofy things like, in equilibrium, the ratio of margin utilities of good X and Y has to be equal to the ratio of their prices or the in inverse, I guess, right? Or, actually, hang on, let me write the thing out. Margin utility of X divided by the price of X equals margin utility of Y price of X. Okay, it's not the inverse, right? So the margin utility of X divided by the price of X equals margin utility of Y divided by the price of Y, stuff like that, right? So, you know, the, like, so it's, it's giving the, conveying the idea that the utils per dollar that you spend on good X has to be equal to utils per dollar that you spend on Y because other, if it were different, then, you know, you could just readjust your spending a little bit in order to get more utilities for a given budget constraint, to get more utility, excuse me, not plural, get more utils, for a given budget. So that would make sense if utility were this cardinal thing and that, oh, when you buy your fifth apple, you get 13 utils. And if you buy your sixth apple, you get eight utils and you just keep buying more apples and da, da, da. And in equilibrium, it's got to be the case using calculus that the amount of utils on the margin per infinitesimal money spent has to be equalized across all goods or at least all goods where you're spending any money at all. Right? Okay. And so Rothbard and other Austrians point out that, well, no, that condition that you learn in an elementary economics class at this point doesn't make any sense because utility is not a cardinal thing. That doesn't make sense. It's ordinal. So let me just take a little bit of time to explain what they mean by that. So ordinal numbers are things like first, second, third, sixth. Those are ordinal numbers. Cardinal numbers are what you probably think of as regular numbers like, you know, 3.7 pi, two, 8.473, stuff like that. So you can do arithmetical operations on cardinal numbers. It makes sense to take eight and divide it by two and get four. It doesn't make sense to take eight and divide it by two and get fourth. That doesn't make any sense. It's not, it's not that it's wrong. It doesn't even make any sense, right? And when I and think of, so the analogy I use to, to convey the Austrian perspective on utility, think of friendship, so it makes sense. You could say, oh, Jim is my best friend and Sally is my second best friend. So there's this idea that there's this something called friendship 
and I have a higher intensity of it with respect to Jim than I do with respect to Sally, such that it makes sense to say Jim is my best friend and Sally is my second best friend. It doesn't make sense to say Jim is 13.7% a better friend than Sally is because that implies that friendship is a quantifiable thing that we can, you know, measure in units. And even though it makes sense to say there's friendship and even though it makes sense to say I have more friendship with Jim than I do with Sally, you can see how a lot of people would say it doesn't really make sense to say there's a certain number of units of friendship I have with Jim. And what I mean by saying I'm a better friend with Jim is that I have more friendship units with him than I do with Sally, all right? You can see, and all the more so, it really doesn't make sense to say, hey, if Sally stopped being my friend and became your friend, would the total amount of friendship in society go up, right? That really doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's how people talk when they say stuff like, well, if we had a progressive income tax and took a dollar from a rich guy and gave it to a poor guy, because of diminishing marginal utility, we know that the amount of utils that the rich guy's happiness goes down by is smaller than the amount of utils that the poor guy's goes up by. And so therefore, we've increased total social utility by taking the dollar from the rich guy and giving it to the poor. People talk about that all the time. And you can, and Austrians and others critique that and say, what are you talking about? That's nonsense. It doesn't follow at all from cons standard consumer theory. Okay? So you can see, and so that's what I believe. And, I, and it totally made sense to me. Like, oh my gosh, these mainstream economists are idiots. Then I went to NYU and I learned like the rigor behind modern utility theory and, you know, consumer theory. And I realized, oh, actual like PhD level economists who at least understand their stuff know that utility is actually ordinal. Or I should say, you can construct all of standard consumer choice theory and, you know, microeconomic pricing models and stuff the way in a mainstream model you would illustrate consumers with their endowments and budget constraints and the price vectors and how they optimize and compute various equilibria and so forth. You can do all that while respecting the notion that ultimately subjective preferences are ordinal. So specifically... All you have to assume is that for any bundle of possible goods that somebody could have, like you said, could acquire in the marketplace, that the individual can just decide, you know, between bundle A and bundle B, if A is strictly preferred to B, if B is strictly preferred to A, or if the individual is indifferent between the two. And if you can answer those questions for any possible pairwise comparison of two potential bundles, then that's all you need in order to do modern utility theory or consumer theory to model consumer choice in a market economy, right? And so what, what ends up happening is if you make some reasonable assumptions on the pattern behind those ordinal, and notice it's ordinal because all you're doing is for any two bundles, you're just saying whether one is preferred to the other or if you're indifferent between the two. So you're just saying better or worse or indifferent. That's all you're saying. You're not saying... Bundle A is 13%, gives me 13% more utility than bundle B. All you're saying is, does bundle A give me more, less, or the same amount of utility? Okay. Just like with friendship, you could say, is Jim a better friend than Sally? Is Sally a better friend than Jim? Or are they this, you know, are they equally as good friends, I suppose? Or do I not really have a, do I not consider one of them to be a closer friend than the other? All right. So again, what, 
what they do in modern utility theory is if you have some assumptions about, um, and it, you know, it gets mathematical because it's like if you represent the set of possible bundles that the consumer could get in the marketplace, you know, according like assume it's an XYZ space. And, you know, so it's like the set of possible bundles is a geometrical thing. And, and then you represent the, you know, the budget constraint and blah, 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 or you represent the, the preferences on that space. And you make some assumptions about continuity and things like that, then you can construct a utility function with the characteristic that if the utility, so what, what does a utility function do? The utility, it's a function and it takes the argument of a possible bundle of goods and then it, it maps that onto a number, you know, a, a number drawn from the, the set of real numbers, an element from the set of real numbers. And you can, you know, again, make, given fairly innocuous assumptions about the nature of those ordinal preferences, you can construct a utility function that assigns a unique number to every possible bundle, you know, of consumer goods that the individual might get such that if the number assigned to bundle A is bigger than the number assigned to bundle B, then the individual strictly prefers A to B. And that's, and whereas if the, if the number it assigns is the same, then that means the individual is indifferent, right? That, so that's all it means. And so when you realize that, you say, oh, so there's nothing special about any particular utility function, right? So if, if such a utility function existed, then by the same token, and, and you'd said, that, oh, that utility function U, let's call it, represents this individual's ordinal preferences, by the same token, some other utility function, call it U prime, that is U, but you just double it, well, that would also represent those ordinal preferences, right? So if for every amount of utils that the original function U assigned to a particular bundle, U prime instead assigned two times those utils, well, then that U prime would, would still satisfy the original condition, right? That if bundle A, if the individual would say, oh yeah, I, I strictly prefer that to bundle B, and so we know that the original function U would give a higher number to A than to B. Well, since U prime just doubles everything, it's also got to be the case that the number that U prime gives to A is bigger than it gives to B. All right, you see how that works? Okay, so um, given that if, if the mainstream economist is sharp, he or she knows not to assign any significance to the utils per se that the utility function is just a convenient shorthand so you can use calculus. And so you can say, oh, because this individual who starts out with these primitive, you know, raw ordinal preference relations, rankings of various possible bundles, if I want to say, oh, suppose the price of apples is $5 per pound and the price of oranges is $6 per pound and the individual starts with $100, how much does he want to spend on apples and oranges? Well, instead of having to like look at every possible bundle that's feasible and then pick the one that outranks everyone else. If instead I had a utility function that represented those preferences, it would be a simple matter of saying, you know, take the derivative of the utility function and set it to zero and then, you know, maximize, figure out where it's maximized subject to the budget constraint. All right. So that's, so it's just a shorthand way of finding the answer, but you wouldn't, say, if you understood what was going on and what you were really doing, 
you wouldn't then say, oh, with this particular utility function, the individual and he buys whatever, three apples and 2.6 units of oranges. And that's what, well, it'd, it'd be more than that because I said he had $100, but you get the idea. <laughs> pick and pick a numbers that adds up to $100 spent. Um, and that's the thing that maximizes his utility. And he gets, he happens to get 372.7 utils. You would know that, no, the 372 point, whatever I said, that's means nothing. The important thing is how many oranges and how many apples did he get? Because using different utility functions, you're still always going to have the same number of actual concrete units of goods purchased. But the amount of utils assigned to that bundle is not going to be pinned down. Because again, you could just, whatever utility function works, you could just double it, double all the numbers, and it would still work. You would still optimize by picking, you see what I'm saying? That whatever bundle gave the most utility or the most utils under the original utility function, if you picked a new utility function that doubled everything and added seven, then where that second utility function was maximized, again, subject to the budget constraint, would be the same bundle. Okay, so the, the, the thing that's important is what we're trying to model and explain as economists is consumer behavior. Like, why do they go out and why do they buy so many units of different goods? That's what we're trying to explain. And oh, and what if your income went down to $90? How would the individual change his purchases? Or what if the price of apples fell, but his income stayed the same? What would he do in the new equilibrium? Those are the kinds of questions you want to answer. You don't want to answer how many utils did he get because, again, that's, it's a meaningless thing. And if you understand what the utility function is doing, you'll know that you shouldn't put any weight on the utils per se. Okay, so, so I sort of was disillusioned when I went to grad school and learned that. I felt like Rothbard had lied, not lied to me, but misled me, let's say. And I was mad. But then as time passed and I spent more time at NYU and I saw, okay, yeah, even though technically the textbook talks about that and since I'm anal and I go and read that stuff, I know it, I don't think out of 20 classmates, I think maybe two of them besides me understood what I just went over. Okay, it's, it's not that the other ones were too stupid and didn't get it, so they didn't, they didn't care about it, you know what I mean? Like, they wouldn't have cared one way or the other about that. And, and then also, like, later on, we would talk about the social welfare function and how what you're trying to do as the central planner is to maximize social welfare and things like that. And nobody had any problems with um, aggregating everybody's utilities and to come up with a social welfare ranking, which I mentioned in episode or the part one of this series, that's what Arrow's impossibility theorem has to do with. That's what Arrow was working on was one way of thinking of it was to say, let's take everybody's subjective idiosyncratic preferences over political outcomes or just states of the world broadly construed and see, is there a rational way we can sort of aggregate that vector of individual preferences into a quote social ranking? And what we found is no, you can't given a pretty reasonable set of criteria that a desirable procedure would possess by which we would map from a vector of individual subjective preferences into a social preference ranking, we find out that there is no such procedure that satisfies all of those basic criteria of what we would have thought would be something any reasonable one would possess. Okay, so <laughs> there's fundamental... and. Again, what, what did the mainstream do with that? They went, huh, that's cool, Arrow. Anyway, back to what we were doing. Let's talk about democracy, right? So um, in any event, 
I, my anger with Rothbard subsided that I realized, okay, yes, it is true that the mainstream economists, if they know what they're doing when they have those equilibrium conditions, that, ah, you know, when, when the consumer is optimizing, it's true that the marginal utility divided by the price of the good is the same across all goods, at least for which money is being spent. Um, a good mainstream economist will know that technically, you know, utils per dollar spent is a meaningless thing or, you know, don't, don't attribute too much to it, that it's, it's just unique for an individual utility function and for the same person, the same purchases, the numbers could end up different if you just used a different scaling factor. Still, having said all that, in practice, a lot of mainstream economists, let alone the general public, still say things and act as if they believe in cardinal utility. All right, so um, I don't think the Austrians are wrong to emphasize that, uh, even though, like I say, the situation is a little bit more nuanced than you might have thought if you just read the Austrian critiques. And so, for example, if you've read Brian Kaplan's essay, Why I'm Not an Austrian, that's one of the things he brings up. And so, yes, I get where Brian's coming from. And that's how I felt too. My first year of grad school, I felt like the Austrians had mischaracterized what the mainstream economists believed. But then the longer I hung around with mainstream economists, the more I realized, no, actually, most of them in practice do miss a lot of this stuff. And most of them in practice have no problem with progressive income taxation for the purpose of increasing social utility. Like they wouldn't, to them, it's not like fingers on a chalkboard of, oh my gosh, you can't do interpersonal utility comparisons. No, they, they got no problem with that. They have no problem with saying, if you take a dollar from a rich person and give it to a poor person, that increases social utility. Whereas for most Austrians, that's like saying red is heavier than green or something. Like it's just like, it's, it's nonsense. It doesn't, it's not that it's wrong. It just doesn't even make any sense. Okay, I will stop there. Thanks for your attention, folks, and I will see you next time for part three in this series of What Did Bob Learn? You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.